Jeff, one of the elders here at the church, Pastor Ronnie, is in Pittsburgh this weekend, so I have the opportunity to break open uh, God's Word with you. And so we'll be in the book of Philippians this morning if you want to make your way there uh, in your Bibles or on your phones or uh, whatever you've brought with you this morning. We're continuing on in a series in the church uh, titled, The God Who Redeems. So far, we've been in the Old Testament. I'm going to jump us into the New Testament this morning. We've looked at the lives of some of those folks we might call heroes of the faith at some point in time, and, and looked at uh, how God had redeemed them, how God had used them in, in ways that they didn't expect. And so there's great lessons for us as we think about that this morning. And as I said, we're going to look at Paul's life this morning. We're going to see a man who was 100% committed to a religious life that was full of rules and regulations. But then he discovers the gospel and meets Christ, and his life completely changes. He moves from a man who was pursuing Christians to have them killed to a man who wrote about 13 books in the New Testament. What an amazing transformation. And what a great lesson in the gospel and redemption for us that we'll discover we're going to look at uh, his life this morning, as I said, in, in the book of Philippians, and, and discovering what a redeemed life looks like. If someone were to ask you that, how would you uh, explain that? If someone came to you and said, well, I hear you're a Christian, and, and you use this word redemption, what does that mean? Could you explain that? Those are questions we need to be prepared to answer in our life, maybe this morning, you don't know what that means, and it's my hope that through God's Word, we'll discover that this morning. You want to look at Paul's life, I see some real similarities to the way I see a lot of people live today. They're fearful and uncertain about their life, and especially when they think of life for eternity. They have uh, settled for a belief that's inaccurate, that has trapped them in a set of religious works of trying to do things to make themselves acceptable to God. And they find themselves coming to places in life that say, man, I hope I did enough. I hope I'm good enough. I hope I followed the things that God said close enough that one day when I stand before him, he will say, you're in good shape. They substitute religious Uh, sets of beliefs that lead them to believe they're in control of their life by their actions and that they can somehow control their eternal destiny. Well, as you look at Paul's life and as uh, I'm here to proclaim this morning, that's in contrary belief to the gospel. That's not the gospel. Look at Philippians 3 chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 1 this morning as we begin. And I want us to take note of uh, just the first verse that, that Paul says this as he writes to this church, this set of believers. In chapter 3, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. 
Paul's going to constantly go back to talking about the gospel in all the letters he writes to his churches because there was this danger of them believing in something that was contrary to the gospel. So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He's, he's using this word joy or rejoice about 16 times in this letter he writes to these uh, folks in Philippi. And then he goes on to say that to write the same things to you is no trouble, and it's uh, safe for, you, for me to do so. Why? Because he knew the danger of believing anything contrary to the gospel. He's communicating and emphasizing the joy or rejoicing that is available to them when they understand the gospel and when the gospel alone forms and informs their faith. If we had time to dissect this word, uh, you would discover that joy and rejoicing connects back to having an inner delight, a secured hope, Uh, an internal gladness, and there's almost a medical connection, meaning to have a a health in your soul. And so he writes and he says, hey, be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord. Uh, It's having an overflowing peace and fullness in life, and, you know, the truth is, that's what we're all desiring. But the question is, how do you find it? Paul's communicating in the passage we will study this morning, and we'll be in verses 1 through 16, that the person and work of Christ alone brings salvation. And that, uh, that gives us joy and brings us to rejoicing. Let me say it again. The person and work of Christ alone brings salvation, giving us joy and leads us to rejoicing. I just want to point out, before we go too much further, though, this morning, a couple of things that Jesus said as he begins his earthly ministry. He he stood in such stark contrast to the religious teachings of the time. Here's how Jesus begins his earthly ministry. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, the gospel of God and saying, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. He didn't go back to the synagogue and teach a lot more rules and regulations and the law. He said, the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Again, in Mark chapter 4, verse 23, he says, uh, he went through all, all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus was so, so focused on proclaiming the gospel. Paul was so, so focused on proclaiming the gospel. And so think about those verses with me for just a moment that Jesus uh, spoke. If he focuses on teaching people, they must make a transition from a religious-based faith of works to try and gain acceptance to God, to a redemption security that can only come from the gospel. Tim Keller, a pretty well-known pastor in New York City and writer and theologian of our day, 
says this, the gospel is radically different from religion. Religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel operates on the principle, I am accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. That's the great reversal we all need to come to. The gospel is about the work that God did, not the work we think we need to do to gain acceptance. It's the gospel that's the basis for our redemption. And so this morning, I want you to know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt when you leave this morning what the gospel is and what redemption is. I find it interesting that that Paul starts out in verse 1 that we read and says, it's no problem for me to say this to you again. The truth is, it's a, a great relief for pastors not to come up, have to come up weekly with some uh, tricky, new, fancy sermon to try and give you. Come up with something that I could create to make you feel good or to have a better life now and all that kind of jazz. You know what? I got the gospel. That's all I got. And that's what you will hear if you come to Substance Church. We got the gospel. That's it. So without the gospel, you see, we make ourselves big and God small. Without the gospel, we make ourselves better than what we actually are, and we minimize our sin. Without the gospel, you'll never understand God's grace, his mercy, and his love, which will bring you to a need of salvation. The gospel frees us by allowing us to work hard at loving and serving God, not so that he's pleased with you or that he accepts you, But we do those things because God has shown his pleased with us and has showed us his favor on the cross through Christ and therefore releases us to truly worship and love him. So Paul is going back to the gospel. He's going back to the place of saying, hey, don't get deceived, don't get distracted by anything other than the gospel. And he's going to use his life as the personal testimony of what it looks like to move to redemption. Chances are there's some people here this morning that uh, know about God. Some of you know about God. And you might know about God through a church experience. And that's good. But chances are there are some of you who know about God that don't really know God. Understand the difference? There's a difference about knowing about God and knowing God. So let's read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. And discover Paul's life before Christ and after he comes to meet Christ. And how he moved from knowing about God to knowing God. Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, I counted a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the, re, uh, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it, that also to you only. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Notice three times at the beginning of this chapter, Paul uses the word, look out, look out, look out. And he uses this real flattering phase by saying, look out for the dogs. Now, most of us have dogs. I've had a dog uh, until recently. Uh, and, and they're pets. They're nice little animals we keep around the house. But Paul's not talking about that kind of a dog when he uses this language. This is a real insult to the people that would have heard it. Dogs were scavengers. They were those who ran around the town and scavenged meat. They weren't house pets as we know. And so Paul says, look out, look out, look out. Because it's not really about them. If you read this passage carefully, it's about a belief system that they were perpetuating. It was about a belief system that was contrary to the gospel that the Philippians would have to deal with. See, this group of people, at least one group mentioned here in this story, was a group called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers would have at least acknowledged Christ, would have uh, uh, possibly said he was the Messiah, but only for Israel. And so the Judaizers would have told people, like the Philippians, look, if you really want to be a Christian, yes, believe in Christ, but then you have to now become a Jew. Because he's only the Savior for the Jews, not the entire world. You see what's happening? He's saying, look, there's some works you have to do, so now you can really be accepted. And Paul's saying, look, you, you can't believe this stuff because it distorts the gospel. No, no matter how long you've been a Christian, and we're all going to battle this in some form in our own life, to think we have to do more, we have to work harder in order for God to be pleased with us. It comes naturally. It just doesn't seem right, does it, sometimes to think, don't I have to do something? 
Is there some more I have to do? And Paul's saying, look, we can't add anything to the truth of the gospel. So he writes to these believers and gives them this stark contrast to what a redeemed life looks like that believes the gospel, who trusts in the gospel, and he uses his life as the model for this. So I want us to look at three things, looking at Paul's life and the verses here that follow these to help us see what a redeemed life looks like, how Paul is now different when he believes and understands the gospel. First, a redeemed life, someone who truly understands the gospel, understands that Christ and the cross alone make us acceptable to God, not correct conformity. Let me say it again. Christ and the cross alone makes us acceptable to God, not correct conformity by our actions. He's saying everything in in verses 3 through 9 is the section we're going to be in here. He's saying everything he once trusted for his acceptance to God, he has found to be useless. And he uses the word um, in this uh, manure, actually, and I just said manure in church. Can you believe that? He, he said all those things are, are useless, empty, that he pursued, that he counted on one time for his faith. And he's made a transition from religion to redemption through the gospel. Verse 9, look at it closely with me. He says, he wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God depends on faith. Paul's saying the only way to be accepted by God is to somehow obtain a righteous standing. And he tried all kinds of things to see that happen by religious duties and works, which we'll look at in a moment. But he found those to be lacking, insufficient to make him right with God. So I want us to think for a moment, when Paul uses this language, righteous, um, wouldn't be a term in which we would maybe typically find in our culture today, unless you're from the 60s and that era like me, and then there was the righteous brothers, right, Dave? But uh, we're not talking about them. Uh, God alone sets the requirements for us to be accepted by him. Let me say it again so you know. God alone sets the requirements for acceptance. Uh, Righteousness means his attributes are, are the standard by which we get measured one day when we stand before him. You and I are measured by his perfection, his holiness, his rightness. He determines all that. We do not determine that. And so when you and I stand before him one day, we don't set the, uh, the categories or the level to be accepted by God. He does. I grew up on a farm, and I remember uh, most weeks we would go to the local feed mill to purchase grain. And uh, we, we'd take the pickup truck into town, and we'd go to the feed mill, and we would get these big 100-pound bags of feed. And when I was little, I wasn't even big enough to drag them, let alone lift them. But they would put the bag on a scale with this arm across it with some weights on it. And once it hit 100 pounds, you knew that the bag was uh, at that right weight. 
So the people at the feed mill put the bags on, fill each one till the scale measure is out and showing 100 pounds. I, w- I want you to think for me, with me for a moment. It's, it's like that of you and I standing on the scale and, and God's perfection and his holiness and his rightness and his justice are the pieces that we get weighed by. You have to make sure your goodness matches God's righteousness. Only by his standards, only by his means are we evaluated. So here's why the gospel is good news this morning that Paul writes about. Uh, in, in essence, the gospel was about, as we started this series on redemption, and all the way back to uh, Genesis in the early chapters, Adam and Eve had this perfect relationship with God. You remember that when we went through that, when we started the series? And, and even though they had this perfect relationship with God, they chose to sin. They chose to rebel against God. And, and so they were separated from God. And we look from Genesis all the way through Revelation. We're going to see this gospel thread that's being proclaimed and preached and taught that says now that man is separated from God, we need a way back in order for those scales to be right. So God made us perfect to have a relationship with him. You and I, by nature and by choice, sin against God. Meaning this, we pursue the things of his creation, the good things of this life, more than we pursue God. He wants our worship. He wants us to have a relationship with him to be right. And we miss that mark. But the good news, the gospel that Paul's going to flesh out here in a moment is that God, being rich in mercy, sent Christ, sent Christ to be the only solution to bring us back to God, to make the scales weigh properly. The gospel is about God's work on your and my behalf, not about our work to please God. I can remember I did not grow up in church and uh, didn't grow up in a religious home, although if you swore you got your mouth washed out with soap, um, especially if you used God's name in vain. I'm not sure why that was, but uh, anyway, I remember when God seemed to be working on my own life one day um, as he started to draw me to himself I had, this, um, I had this way of thinking, I have to do more to make God happy. I didn't know what it was, but, but I have to do more. I have to be a good person. And so the only way I could evaluate myself was to look at the people around me. And believe it or not, there were some worse than me. <laughs> but I was not that great of a guy to begin with. And so I'm banking on my goodness compared to somebody else. And, and Paul is trying to sell um, the Philippians see that there's no goodness apart from the work that Christ does on our behalf. And so Paul, in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 3, begins to lay out this argument to say, for those of you who would trust in your own good works to be right with God, I want you to see how insufficient they are. He says this in verses 4 through 6. He said, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day as the Mosaic law prescribed. 
He's going to lay out this argument to say, all the things that you believe in a religious sense, I tried to meet and probably did better than the rest of you. He says he was of the people of Israel. In other words, he was a pure Jew. He was not a proselyte, not a Gentile who became a Jew. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. That was the most favored tribe from which Saul, the first king of Israel, came from. This tribe whom the Lord loved, Scripture says. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning his parents raised him in this Jewish home, obeying Jewish customs, and he would have known the Hebrew language, used it, studied it in his own home. He goes on, he says, hey, I'm a Pharisee, as a matter of fact. That's this legalistic, highly trained in the Mosaic Law group of religious leaders during the time. They followed the Old Testament law faithfully. They were very zealous about their faith. And he said, uh, beyond that, I was a zealous Jew. He was a persecutor of the Christian church, going actively to find people who believed the gospel and leave Jesus to have them put to death. And he says, in terms of legalistic righteousness, he knew the Torah, he observed it, he knew all the rites and the rituals and other Words this, he was the best church boy you could find. He was it. But Paul's morality and his religion by man's evaluation, while it should have been enough, he had done the good things of religion. He recognizes correct conformity is unable to make him righteous before a righteous God. And so now he faces what will I do? If you were to have time this morning, we would go to Acts chapter 9 and look at the time that Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus as he's seeking out more Christians to bring back and probably have put to death. We don't have the time this morning, but I want you to contrast what I just read to Paul's life now in verses 7 through 9. He's saying things like this, Above all things, everything that I once trusted in is a loss. It's rubbish. It's, it's manure. It's dung for gaining righteousness. It was unable to do so. And that God really didn't care about those things. He goes on to say that his pursuit in life is to know Christ Jesus, his Lord, and that only the work on the cross could gain a righteousness with God. And so he would trust this alone. He goes on, he said he wants to be found in him, trusting Christ and the cross by faith, standing alone on the work of Christ to forgive sin. He would no longer trust his religious resume when he stood before God one day. I love verse 9. He says he doesn't have a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from, what's it say? God. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's a stark contrast to trying to earn our way to acceptance by God. Second Corinthians 5.21 helps us understand this. God made him, meaning Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so we could have the righteousness 
of God. That's it. Paul understood that. And so he wants to make sure the gospel is at the center, that the Philippians church is not going to be pulled astray by this good works uh, teaching of the Judaizers. So look, stand firm. Find your joy in Christ and the gospel. Look out, look out, look out. That's all I got for you this morning in terms of these verses. Look out, look out, look out. It can be nothing besides the gospel. So the question is, how are you, uh, this morning, are you counting on your moral resume to justify you to God? Uh, Have you slipped into pursuit of trying to make God happy with you? Have you pursued religious activity to make yourself feel good and hope that God sees you as righteous one day? Second thing I see in these verses, and they're found in verse 8 and 10, is that when we look at Paul's life, he's showing a a redeemed life as pursuing a relationship with Christ over making religious ritual the pursuit. Pursuing a relationship with Christ over making religious ritual a pursuit. Again, in verse 8, he says, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you see the relationship connection? For this sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, God desires intimacy with us. This relationship that was broken all the way back in the garden, he, he desires for us to worship and love and relate to him, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. And he doesn't want some kind of an intellectual acknowledgement from you and I about Christ and his gospel. You see, relationship focuses on knowing God. It focuses on pursuing and loving and worshiping and being with. Remember Jesus said the greatest commandment of all is to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. That's relational in nature, isn't it? Ritual focuses on finding favor with God, and it's almost like a bribe with God, if you will. Ritual says, if I do this, God will be obligated to treat me this way or give me something. So when Paul says, Uh, and uses the term in him, this is a a relational term as well as a legal term, meaning we can be justified in right relationship, but also because of that, we desire him. So Paul says he wants to know Christ, not know about him, and there's a difference. And he uses his life to lay these things out. You know, I studied for this this week. It brought me back to thinking uh, Kim and I celebrated 35 years of uh, marriage this summer. We've known each other uh, starting back in college 40-some years. And I was thinking that uh, when I first started to date her, I would do anything possible to put myself in a place so I could spend time with her. So uh, for football practice, you have to walk across campus. She'd have an art class. The direct route was this way. I would take this way. So when she came out, I get to walk with her, spend a little time with her. 
I want you to think about this for a moment. And, and, and what if you're married this morning, all you wanted to do was spend an hour, maybe two hours a week with the person you're now married to? I'm guessing you're not going to be married, right? How do we treat God that way? I'll give you an hour of my time Sunday morning. I'll, I'll give you maybe a little extra time, a few moments on the mornings when I get up, or I'll pray at a mealtime. Religion is only legalism without relationship. Let me say that again. Religion is only legalism without relationship. And so it's going to take time and effort to develop a relationship back with God. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, an Old Testament example of this, says, uh, says this. The writer says, With what should I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression or sin, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires. That you do justice and love kindness and check this out. Walk humbly with your God. That's relational. And the writer in Micah is saying, what should I do all these things so that God is pleased? And it's like, no, don't. That's not what God requires. God does not desire for you to perform acts of religious offerings to him. He desires for you to worship him and love him and acknowledge him and his love for you through Christ, making you acceptable to him once again. And so Paul, and I read these set of verses, it's kind of like the single-minded quest. I want to know Christ. I want to be with Christ. More and more and more. So what does it take to do that? It takes prioritizing your life around having a relationship with Christ to know him and not know about him. It means you desire to be with him. You desire to be with his people because this helps you know him more. But too many people get this a little confused. One of the things that uh, I would say over my life and ministry I've noticed is far too many people understand uh, the concept of knowing about God, but not as many people know God. So many people have made this some kind of an, a, an academic mental agreement in our minds that we have missed what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the gospel is about believing and trusting in the work of Christ to the point that you are now devoted in your entire life to following him. It, it brings a life change and passion not a mental agreement. That's not what Paul has been talking about. Third thing I see is Paul saying a redeemed life has a passionate pursuit of God and not a pursuit of periodical presence. A passionate pursuit of God, not a pursuit of periodical presence. And when I use the word periodical presence, maybe in a big sense, I'm talking about folks who are caught up in the church attendance mindset. 
He says, not that I've, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. He says, I press on, not that I've already arrived. He's been a Christian for over 33 years when he writes this letter and he's saying, hey, I'm not there yet. I'm going to press on passionately to know Christ. The word perfect here doesn't mean that he's sinless. But what he's trying to communicate is that he's pressing on to know Christ, be conformed more to the image of Christ so that he lives a life pursuing the same things that Christ pursued. He says, the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, this is a life of passionate pursuit. The the wording that is used here means uh, pressing on to run hard after something, means to chase something down, to go after with great desire. When he uses the word straining forward, that means to the point of exhaustion in his life. It means to overextend oneself, to stretch your muscles to the limit. And so Paul's saying, you know what? This life in Christ brings me passionate pursuit of Christ. Would you say you want to pursue Christ this way this morning? Again, not to gain acceptance, but because you are accepted, because you understand the gospel. Would you say that your desire in life is to become more like Christ so bad that you would do it to the point of exhaustion in your life? I want that. You know what? When that's the focus of my life, I go all the way back to the first thing Paul said, rejoice in the Lord. When Christ is at the center, I have joy and I rejoice. When you settle for periodic presence, you attempt to fit Christ into your life rather than making Christ the center of your life. Here's some things as I close this morning that I would say would be evidences from someone who is a passionate pursuit of Christ in their life. I would say when you look at their life, they would model a desire to love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not that they get it accomplished. I don't get it accomplished. But that's my desire. Uh, They would also talk about Christ and the gospel unashamedly when they have a passionate pursuit of Christ. Uh, They are passionate about being with God's people and investing in his people. They would understand not only loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but loving people, as the second part of that verse says. They will find ways to live on mission for God and their generous people because God was so generous to them in the gospel. The way they relate to people is generous. It was no problem for Paul to write the same things to remind the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. To look out, be careful, don't accept a distorted gospel. My three questions for you, you might want to jot them down this morning, are these. Do you trust alone in Christ and his work on the cross, or are you caught up in hoping for some form of correct conformity one day? Are, are you caught up on this religious treadmill of trying to do more and more and more to find acceptance by God? Second, 
Are you pursuing a deep relationship with Christ? Or is your pursuit that of a religious ritual? Are you trying to do the things of God without really knowing God? And finally, do you have a passionate pursuit of Christ in your life? Or are you more in the camp of a periodical presence? Let's pray. Father, this morning we're thankful for your word and for the reminder this morning that what you have shown us through your scriptures is always about the gospel. That how we are separated but through Christ can be reunited, but not only reunited, now restored in our relationship and on the path of restoration of a life that is passionate for you. I pray for those that are here this morning as well as myself that have been trapped at times in this uh, pursuit of trying to do good things to be acceptable to you. Might your gospel have boldly and clearly been understood in their hearts. And, and for us this morning that maybe have sacrificed uh, this relationship that you desire with us for a church time on Sunday morning or some other religious activity, might you draw us to yourself and remind us that what you want is for us to love you and worship you. And so, Lord, help us this morning to have a passionate pursuit. A passionate pursuit of you, not so that we are accepted, but because we are accepted and that because of the gospel and its implication and application to our life who believe. Lead us in this in Christ's name. Amen.